I've always made very calculated risks, but sometimes maybe they were too safe. And so this last year, year and a half, as the confidence has grown, my tolerance, risk tolerance has also grown. Welcome to In the Thick of It. I'm your host, Scott Hallrow. On today's episode, you'll hear from Ashish Patel, CEO and founder of Simpat Tech. During our conversation, Ashish reflects on his upbringing as an immigrant in Maryland, his love for travel, and how those experiences shaped his entrepreneurial ambitions. He also discusses his transition to the world of consulting and the pivotal moment when he decided to start his own company. He shares some of the most interesting projects his company has worked on, what it's like operating a nearshore model with part of his team in Mexico and part in the U.S., and the importance of networking with other founders in the process. Thanks so much for making time. Thank you, Scott. So just tell us a little bit about yourself. We're, we're here in lovely Austin, Texas. Yeah. Great, great place. How long have you been here? Yeah, I, I moved to Austin, Texas in 2009 for a company called National Instruments. Quickly realized that corporate was not for me, so I moved on to a smaller consulting company. And uh, after that, realized that I could do this, potentially do it better and start my own thing. Awesome. Okay. So you've been in Austin since 09. Correct. It's changed just a little bit. Quite a bit. Yes. What's the biggest change that you've seen? I think the biggest change, obviously, has grown like crazy. But what it's also done is brought in people from all over the country and uh, brought in kind of their own flair to Austin. And, uh, And I think that I actually, some people don't like what they call Austin, like the original OG Austin changing, but I actually have enjoyed it, kind of seeing it grow and change and add a little bit more cultural mix to it. Okay. What's your favorite thing about living in Austin? People. I grew up on the East Coast in Maryland, um, which is a little bit more busier and not as friendly. Maybe not as friendly. That's not the right word. Uh, People aren't as open to engaging conversations. And coming to Austin, you really get that personal touch when we move in, you know, what the, the neighbors come in and see you and talk to you, just being in a line and, and people are open to having conversation. And uh, I really enjoy that. People really try to help each other out here. You got that Texas hospitality. Exactly. Texas originally Tejas, which means friend. So, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, in another part of it, you know, is it's a, a little bit laid, more laid back than uh, the East Coast. It's a nice mix between the West and the East, you're going to get the best of both. Uh, people still want to get stuff done, but they're not on your case about it all the time. Yeah. All right. So let's just talk a little bit about kind of growing up. What was life like for you? You said you, you grew up in Maryland. Yeah. Where in Maryland? Yeah, I grew up in Maryland, a suburb of DC. So huge political influence there. A lot of defense contractors. In fact, my dad worked for a defense contractor. But really, the story kind of goes beyond that. So kind of we we're first immigrants to the U.S. So I was born in the U.K. My parents were actually born in Kenya. And so my great-grandparents moved from India to Kenya. This was all a British colony to create a better life for themselves. And my mom's side actually started their entrepreneurial journey there. They were, they were big suppliers for the British Army. And then, uh, you know, to kind of further their education, my parents moved to the UK, again, all British colonies, so they could do that pretty easily, were able to get an education. Um, They got married there, had me. And then uh, my dad wanted a better life for the family and and took that journey to the US on his own, no family here, no friends. And uh, kind of that's how I got here and was able to start my journey. And so for me, you know, what I've reflected over those past years, I'm just grateful 
for all these different things that have happened and, you know, my relatives have done uh, to get to me where I'm at now to have this opportunity. That's awesome. How old were you when you moved from the UK? I was four. Okay. So real, real young. Yeah, real young. Do you have distinct memories from living in the UK? Not many, but, uh, you know, I I do remember we're not very uh, well off in, in the UK. So we were two families living in, you know, a couple bedroom house and we all helped each other. But I do remember, you know, getting picked up by my uncle and taking the double decker bus. That's the one memory I have. Uh, getting picked up from school. Wow. Okay. So you've got family roots in the US, the UK, India, and Kenya. Correct. Yeah. Have you been back to the other places? Yeah, I have been back to all of them. You know, my uh, I'm pretty distant to India in terms of my my family, but I have family in Kenya, family in the UK. We're actually going to go to the, we usually go every couple of years, but with COVID that we're going to go back for the first time next summer. But yeah, you know, I've traveling has been a part of my life since very young. And it continued, you know, I, I spent a, a year before I moved to Austin, I spent a year traveling the world with a backpack. Honestly, that was probably out of all my education, that was the biggest education that I had. When you're trying to figure out how you're going to survive off $10 a day in Southeast Asia, <laughs> you figure it out. Wow. Wow. I'm not that brave. <laughs> Good for you. So where all did you go on that trip? There was 40 countries, actually. That 40 countries? <laughs> yeah. You wore out your passport. Yeah, it was It was towards the end of it. Yeah, I started in Asia. After I graduated undergrad, I, I spent six months in Australia before I started grad school. I had a, kind of a little break. I graduated in December. And I loved traveling. I knew I, and I had a buddy that wanted to do this. So that was like my first experience of what does it really look like to be abroad and kind of live off a backpack. And I got the bug and I was like, I want to do this, but I want to see more of the world. I knew that once I got into the real world, there was never going to be an opportunity to do that. And so I got a job with National Instruments and I said, give me the further start date that you can give me. And I kind of jacked up. I told him, give me as much as I can on on the um, signing bonus. And I took a little bit of a pay cut and I was like, all right, this is what I got to go around the world. So yeah, I got a backpack and, and, and landed in Japan and then kind of just started working my way around through and made it through, went to Southeast Asia, then to Africa, South Africa, and then into Europe. Actually went to India too. But yeah, it was, I saw a lot. I mean, it was an amazing experience, met some amazing people, got to see some really amazing parts of the world. And you did it for a whole year? For a whole year, yeah. They let you defer your start date by a year. I did. Well, what happened, I mean, there was some caveats to it. So I was part of a leadership program I can, they have dead start dates already planned out for the rest of the year. And I just picked the last one. But what was interesting is I was sitting in Thailand on the beach. That sounds so, on a I'm so sorry. No, it gets, and, and I'm watching the news and that's when this, the crash happened in 2008. Oh my gosh. So I'm sitting there, I'm like, I'm in Thailand and I don't even know if I have a job when I get back. But I refuse to contact the company because I was like, I am moving to Austin, Texas. I don't care if I don't have a job, I'm going to get in a car when I get home and I'm driving to Austin, Texas. And luckily on the drive there, I got an email saying, these are the details for your start date. But it turned out that was the last group before they canceled the rest of the groups. Uh, So it worked out well. Golly. I mean, man, hey, your offer has been rescinded. Yeah. That would have been, that would have been rough. Right. So they also gave you money up front with your signing bonus. Correct. So you're traveling on their dime <laughs> yes. and 
man, that, you're a great negotiator. I may, uh, I may call you at some point to, <laughs> to help me work out a work out a deal. Work out a deal. You want to go on a, on a sabbatical? <laughs> I'm actually doing that uh, next summer. So. Oh, very cool. Yeah, yeah. All right. So, 40 countries. I, I know everybody. I'm sure asks you this. Pick one. What was your favorite spot? Yeah, South Africa by far. Okay, you didn't hesitate. On no, that. I mean, I get, yeah, I get that. It's South Africa and Japan, but if I have to choose one, it has to be South Africa. Just the the culture there, the food, the wine is amazing. You have beaches, mountains right there. And then, you know, I spent time, I don't know how much you know about South Africa, but they have, you know, they just, apartheid just ended within the last 40 years, 30 years. So you get to see a lot of that culture. So I'd spend time, I'd bike, take a bike and go into these townships. So, you know, that's where they moved all of the blacks into these townships and they created their own culture and um, community there. And I got to spend time there with them and help, you know, play soccer with the kids. And uh, I really kind of bonded uh, with a lot of folks down there. And, and then just the other side of a really cool country. Yeah. Uh, so that was my favorite. I've I've heard that it's a beautiful place and the dollar goes very far. And, yeah. And uh, yeah, I definitely would love to go go check that I out. I recommend sometime. it. Yeah. All right. So let's talk a little bit about your education. Sure. Um, growing up, do you go to private school, public school? Yeah, public school. You know, the, the schools um, that we were in the county that we were is a suburb of D.C. So a lot of politicians. So the, the school system was amazing. But the beauty of that school system is it was diverse. You know, it was, I think it was a 50% minority school, but very high performing. So I was challenged very, you know, specifically in high school, right? Just with my culture, that education was high priority, but then I was also not the best. And it was, it was humbling to see that and also uh, motivating as well. Yeah. Were your parents hard on you academically? I wouldn't say hard because I, I was always did well at school. They just made sure it was a priority. Okay. All right, so college. Where, where yeah, I went to Virginia Tech. <laughs> I don't tell a lot of people this, but Virginia was my first choice, but uh, didn't get into Virginia, and so went to Virginia Tech. And then, um, yeah, did start. I knew I wanted to do computer science when I uh, was my senior in high school. My dad was a software engineer for a defense contractor, and and so computers had been all around me pretty early. Um, you know, I had the the OG Apple two C, and my dad's friends were teaching me how to program it. You know, it's something that was natural to me. And so I continued down that path, went to Virginia Tech, wasn't super challenged early, but maybe towards the end, I was challenged a little bit more, but I really loved learning and I, went, I knew I wanted to continue that. So I did an extra semester, partly to do an extra season of football. <laughs> I didn't tell my parents that. What, yep. what year would that have been? <clears throat> that was 2005. So it was right. It was doing the, they made it to the national championship the year before I got there in 99, Uh, but they still had some great years right after. Was that in the Michael Vick era? It was, yeah. Plus, and then his uh, brother, Marcus Vick, too, came through. Did you ever see him around campus? Yeah, I did. You know, he would, I'd see him in the cafeteria. I wasn't on the track team, but I knew some of the athletes and and they knew him pretty well. And yeah. Okay. All right. So undergrad, Virginia Tech. Yeah. Then I took some graduate in December, got into Virginia Tech and University of Florida. Yeah. So I had six months before I started at Florida and my parents were pushing me to get an internship, but I went to Australia instead. So put that computer science to good, good use. I was, uh, making fish and chips on the beach. (laughs) 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 
Uh, so worked about three months on the beach, lived in a house with like eight other people, and then spent three months traveling up the coast and then came home, started school and went to Florida for an information systems degree. Okay. Man, you've lived a heck of a life. <laughs> what was your first job? Oh, ever. Yeah. You know, something that was important to me is freedom. <laughs> and to have to have freedom, you needed money. So basically at the earliest that you could work is officially where I was in Maryland was I think around 15. And so I became a lifeguard. So I'd, I'd been a swimmer all my life. So sports were a big part of my growing up. I think I was a very active kid. So my parents just threw me into everything and swimming. I took to swimming pretty well. And so, you know, I became a lifeguard and started making, I think it was like five fifty-five or something in an hour. But, you know, back then when you're 15, you know, that was, you think you're, you're rolling in it. Right. I bagged groceries at a grocery store. We lived in Minnesota at the time mm-hmm. and I made $3 and 14 cents oh an hour. Gosh. Yeah. I was 14 when I started. Wow. So five fifty sounds great. <laughs> I think it was minimum wage at the time, but yeah, you know, it, you can't complain. You're you're with your friends at the pool, and you know your f- other friends come visit you, and it, it was a good, it was fun. I mean, you still had to be responsible, so sure, it was, it was a good balance. Being a, a teenager and getting to work on or by water is not a bad gig at all. No, I um, being here in Austin, lived here for a few years in my late teens. And I had the greatest job ever working out on Lake Travis. Oh, very and cool. Driving boats and, oh, and awesome. being on the dock. And I had the best tan I've ever had in my life. And and uh, anyway, it was just it was a, it was yeah, a great time. Yeah, I spent um, a summer actually at the uh, beach work, uh, doing a, being a beach guard as well. Okay. Which, That's going to be a whole different, I mean, a pool is one thing, but the ocean. Yeah, it, it's more a military style. Like you have hierarchies and sergeants and all that. So it was a good experience as well to kind of learn, understand how that organization is run like a military style. Yeah, for sure. All right. Well, let's kind of get into your, your company. Sure. Um, so uh, maybe before we go there, how did you get into your business? What were the kind of things that led up to it? Yeah. So, you know, I've always had entrepreneurial ambitions. I didn't know how to, and I didn't have the confidence to take that leap. I think that's for very, a lot of reasons, uh, you know, coming, being an immigrant, a lot of cultural conflict growing up. And so you always feel like you don't belong and you're trying to figure out how to belong. And so you're just struggling with that. So it's also, once you feel like you do belong, then you're like, all right, I want some more. I'm like, wh- where can I take this? And so that's what I use as a jumping off point is like, I felt like I've assimilated. I did the job. I got the job. I wasn't happy with it, but um, spent so much energy to get to where I'm at now. I want to just continue pushing. And so after I I joined a company, another consulting company for a couple of years, and it was my first consulting gig. Um, so that's where I learned. And they were really good at the, what they did. And so after I learned you know, what they were doing, how the right way to run a consulting company, I got I was able to move up pretty quickly. I had an opportunity, a jumping off opportunity to work with an existing client. And the CEO, the company CEO was actually very, he was supportive in me doing this. And, you know, I think looking back at it, I'm very appreciative of that because when you're in the consulting, you know, it's pretty cutthroat. You're not as very collaborative across other companies. Um, You can guard your territory. And so I, I was very fortunate where he let me, supported me and actually mentored me to do that. So it was just me 
being a software developer for this client on my own, started my own company, and then figuring out, you know, one person, how, how do I want to grow this? So, you know, that was the jumping off point with just one client, me being a software developer, and then at night figuring out, kind of brainstorming how, I, how to grow it. That's awesome. All right. So what year did you start your firm? 2015. Okay. Same year I started mine. Mm-hmm. And I guess, tell our listeners what you do. Yeah, so we create high-performing teams to solve complex business problems. And, and you know, that's pretty general, but for us, it's we're in the people business. Becoming from a software developer, I truly understand what it means to, to bring, to put together a really high-performing team. And that's really what sets us apart is we create high-performing teams and we work in the B2B space. Okay. For confidentiality reasons, don't need to name a customer, but like, mm-hmm. what are the types of organizations that y'all work with? Yeah. So where we really shine, you know, we're across the board. When you start a company, you say yes to everything, but we're finally trying to create identity. I don't come from a marketing sales background, so we're, we're a little late to the game on that. But really where we shine is in that small to medium business where they're really growing fast and their IT demands just can't meet up with the pace that their their business is growing. And so we come in with that technical leadership and expertise to really help their IT systems support their growth. And are there any specific industries that y'all have found a lot of success in, or is it really just all over? You know, we're, we're pretty industry agnostic. We have a little bit more focus on state and local government and manufacturing, but we were looking at that kind of the the pie earlier this year, and it's no more than 20% in one industry. Okay. Interesting. And you talk about solving complex business problems. Are there a handful of real specific problems that y'all find yourself solving yeah. over and over? Yeah, and I think there's probably some crossover with some of the work you do there uh, is uh, is integrations. I mean, that's that's an area there a lot of people struggle with and fail. I wouldn't say it's the only area that we are excelling, but it is one area that we have found ourselves to be to excel in because it is complex. Um, there, you're working with many different specs. Um, you have to think about how to scale these integrations and uh, what makes sense for the company to maintain moving forward. So that's one area that we have done well in. What's been like the most interesting project that y'all have done? I would say the most interesting was we built a jail system. <laughs> so yes. Okay. For Tarrant County, we built a jail system in collaboration with our client. It's basically the system that runs the entire jail. And, and I didn't realize what it meant to build a jail system or to what it meant to run. It's basically a small city. You're running a small city. There's laundry you have to think about, meals you have to think about, medical, yeah, all types of things. And you have to incorporate that into one system. So like people and facilities management. Exactly. Kind of thing. Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. And are you doing like controls that like unlock this door? No, that it, door, not or? that, not at that level, but we do have to know where every single person is at any moment. You know, there's some integrations into RFID technology to make sure that their locations are being updated as they're moving through the system. That sounds like a massive, massive project. It was a big project. It was about four years. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And I got to believe that they, you know, there's ongoing needs that they have and there's probably oh, yeah. a, a long backlog to, to keep adding stuff. Yes. I mean, they're, what's interesting is they came off of a mainframe. And so crazy to think 2021 people are on mainframes. <laughs> Blows me away. Yeah. I worked for a large, large bank early, early in my career. And even in the early 2000s, the fact that there were things that I had to use a DOS prompt for <laughs> blew me right. away. 
Right. Yeah. So, I mean, the challenge is there is like you can, there's so many things you can make a huge difference on. You have to really pick the few areas that are going to be, have the biggest bang for their buck. Because also the other side is we're working with people that have been on mainframe for years, 20 years potentially. And so you also can't change too much. And so, yeah, you're right. I mean, it's, let's just get off the mainframe step phase one and then phase two, like let's really transform. Yeah. Wow. Let's go back to kind of starting the business. Mm-hmm. You you were married at the time? Yeah, married. And um, and what's crazy is that we just had our first son and he was only three months old. And that'd be the worst time you'd think to start a company, but it was actually a huge motivation, right? Like you you have a kid and you're like, I'm ready to really do something different and, and create some type of legacy. And so it was a motivation. And then the other side is just having an incredibly supportive wife that was like, go for it. I'll cover you. And you start now, you don't think about healthcare and all that stuff. She's said, I'll cover you on, on my side and let's see where we can take it. What kind of work does your wife do? She was a technical writer. Okay. Yeah. So what was that moment, that spark that you were like, this is it. I know what I'm going to do. I've got the clear, clear vision. I'm going to go start something. So I always had it on the back of my mind. I was like, I, I just need a launching point. I, again, I didn't have the confidence just to do it. And I, I envious of those folks that like just take that leap without having something there. I had a client ready to go. You know, I, we were profitable on day one. So when that opportunity came, it was, it wasn't as much of like, if I should do it, but it's, can I? And so, you know, having that very difficult conversation with your employer saying, Hey, I, I want to go off and, and work with a client was probably one of the the first hurdles of becoming an entrepreneur, like having difficult conversations. I think that is one of the, you don't learn though that skill set, And so it's just practice. And so I did that and then, you know, got the okay. And we worked out some of the details on how that looked. Mm -hmm. But then once I was on my own, I just realized I was in full control of the potential, you know, that I had to to take this to where it could be. And I love that freedom. And then from there, it's like, no one teaches you how to be, to start a business and, and grow it. Luckily, I don't know if you're familiar with the organization called EO, yeah. Entrepreneurs Organization. Luckily, uh, I was introduced to that very early, maybe three or four months in, and they have a program called Accelerator. It's basically like the JV team for EO. So anyone that's under a million dollars or a million and a half dollars, that's where you start. And they basically get start introducing you all the tools to get you to their whole goal is to graduate into EO. And so, you know, I was able to take these tools and implement them very early on in the company versus a lot of these other folks that were coming into Accelerator had to go and re-engineer their entire company to apply these tools. So being able to do that early on, I think was a big benefit on being able to grow in a much more efficient way. And did you get into EO or the accelerator? Was that like something you did right out of the gate or was it something you waited a couple of years to? No, right. I mean, that's the reason I think I was, we were able to be so, so successful early on is I did it within four or five months. I've been a part of kind of a similar type organization called Convene. And I don't think people understand the importance and the impact that having a group of people around you that are going through the same kinds of yeah. things and the lessons learned and and the way that you can sharpen and, and help one another be better just by sharing your experience. And, and even if in your group, you're in different industries doing different things, 
there's still so many things that can be learned right. from, from yeah, those 100%. perspectives. Yeah. So I assume you had kind of like a peer group there. Mm-hmm. Did you also have like a mentor? Yeah. Yeah. We had a mentor. So kind of the format is you meet as your small group, you meet with as a mentor, and then you meet as a whole, like a larger group. And, and that's more of content kind of learning type of a learning day where they bring in a speaker and, and they're picking a specific topic. Yeah. Um, Ken, I just, I, I think that's so critical. And for anybody listening, if you're not a part of a peer group of some sort, you need to go find one. And if you don't have a mentor or multiple mentors, find somebody, whether it's a formal mentorship or an informal mentorship. I know it's been a key to my business's growth. Yeah. And, and it's, uh, I, you know, 100% a key to our growth as well. Um, jumping backward for, for just a second. So mm-hmm. you said your wife was really supportive and, you know, I'll, I'll carry you. What was that first conversation like? Hey, honey, um, <laughs> here's what I want to do. How did she respond? You know, the, what I love about my wife is she probably was more into taking on that risk than I was, right? And so wow. she was, yeah. So she was the one pushing me to let's go for it. And, you know, for her, she's great at, she's a visionary. So she wasn't thinking or like I was like, what does our healthcare look like? How we, what if this client goes away? Then, you know, how am I going to find another job? She was thinking what the positives of like, what if we can grow this thing? And what does this look like for our family in five years? And, you know, having that balance is, I think, very key in a partnership. Yeah. You had a newborn, mm-hmm. three-month-old yeah. at the time. I think that that is a testimony of the fact that there's never a good time to right. take a big risk. Yeah. Whether it's starting a business or, or something else there's just never a good time. And if it's something that you feel called to do, you just kind of have to do it. Mm-hmm. And it's worked out really well for you. Yeah. And I, I also agree with that. And, you know, I get a little frustrated sometimes because on hindsight is 2020. I have friends that want to take that risk, but are hesitant. And they're like, well, I just need to wait for this to happen. Or I just need a little bit more stability here. And, you know, I'm, I'm really trying to convince them, like, you just got to go for it. Like You have a great mindset to be successful. I'm 100% confident that you can do this. But it's one of those things that if, if you can't get there yourself, it's hard to tell someone to get there. Yeah. So yeah, I, I agree with you. Yeah. All right. So day one you start, is it just you? Did you have a couple of people that you were working with? Did you have a group of contractors that you were? Yeah, day one, it was just me. You know, I was doing everything and then trying to strategize how to grow it. And so with that client, I found opportunities to bring in some more people. So I brought on a contractor after about eight months. And then, so we were at three people, maybe after two years, I think we got it all the way to five after three years. And I don't know if you want me to fast forward, like where we, we, yeah. So we basically just had that one, two clients at that point, but really I realized that the, my limitation was the people side of things coming from software engineering. I didn't realize that I was actually pretty good at sales. You know, I've never done sales before, but I, sales is just a conversation in building trust. And so I was able to do that pretty quickly by being able to switch my hats, you know, getting on a call and I could be sit, you know, talk to the CTO or talk to the CEO or uh, talk to the CFO and then have converse positive, constructive conversations with them. And so I was, opportunities were coming, but uh, what I didn't want to do is just put, anyone that I could find that made sense into these roles uh, to work with these these clients. I had that pride as a software engineer that I wanted whatever that we were building 
to be the best that it could be. And so finding top quality people was a challenge. And so about in 2017, I met my business partner, not met, but kind of reconnected with my business partner. Uh, we had worked at that previous company that I left together. And uh, he had started their Monterrey office in Mexico. And so he had gone through that journey of starting an office, finding people. And he was a software engineer himself. And, you know, he'd started a company on his own down there. And we we're like, all right, let's, I'll find some great opportunities. And it sounds like you have great talent. Let's figure out how we can solve some, some of these complex problems. And, and we started down that path and it was going really, really well. And through that process, I, we were always discussing what a business partnership could potentially look like. But I was actually really nervous because all I heard over and over again through my forum and through other business owners that I knew that partnerships ended poorly. And so I was really nervous about that. And so what I loved about the way we did it was we basically went in into like an engagement phase, right? So I would find the work and basically Eduardo, my business partner, was helping me fulfill those jobs. And we did it for a year and we realized that this partnership looks really positive. I think that this could work. We were fully aligned in um, kind of our vision culturally, family values, what motivated us. And uh, finally, we kind of just said, let's do it. And uh, we became business partners. And that's really what sparked that rapid growth after that, because now we could kind of not hesitate on saying for me to say yes to opportunities, knowing that I had, he was part of this thing that we're trying to grow. And, uh, you know, he was able not to find amazing talent and amazing people. And at this point, we're about 70 folks now, 60 out of our Monterey office. Wow. Does your business partner live in Monterey? He does live in Monterey. Yeah. Okay. And that's the critical piece to this working is, you know, when we started the comp or when actually Eduardo joined as a partner, the concept of nearshore didn't really exist. And so we're kind of new, the part of the frontier creating that space. And then COVID just, I mean, that's, everyone knows what near, the term nearshore is now with, you know, Latin America and all the big companies are going there. They understand that there is great talent down there. And so we are early to the game and now it's been validated. And so we kind of still be able to ride that, that wave. It's really interesting. Mexico is definitely not the first place I think of when I think of top-notch technical talent, mm -hmm. but more and more, I was talking with another business owner recently who's opened a center in Costa Rica. And right. And you're, you're hearing of lots of South and Central American countries becoming these big hubs for tech innovation. Right. Yeah. And, and you know, the beauty of Monterey is it has, I think, the third best technical university in Latin America. And so you create that center hub of talent and knowledge and kind of businesses tend to gravitate towards that and, and smart people tend to gravitate towards that city. From a logistical and legal and tax You've got entities now in the U.S. and in Mexico. Correct. Has that created complications or difficulties for y'all, or has that actually been pretty easy? You know, it's, it's actually been smoother than I thought it would have been, and mainly because Eduardo was managing most of it. So, but you know, obviously, I get the rundown on what, how that's going, and we actually just created our Mexico entity before it was. We were using the PEO to run it, and so now we're actually formalizing that entity. And yeah, there's some hurdles you have to get through. One thing is the time it takes to actually create an entity. I think I created Simpat Tech in the U.S. in like less than two weeks. And I don't even think I had a lawyer at the time. But down there, it's like, it was, I think we were six months 
took six months. And the only reason we were able to get it across the finish line is because we knew the right person. So there are challenges, but the key again is having someone boots on the ground there that has a key interest in us being successful. So going into starting the business, were there any fears that you had and did any of them actually come to pass? Oh yeah. Tons of fears. I mean, probably the biggest one, and I think this is very common with entrepreneurs is a fear of failure. You know, I, again, I, I grew up without a lot of confidence because I was trying to assimilate from a cultural standpoint, had to learn basically what it meant to be, to grow up in the U.S., And so I was starting probably a little bit of handicap. So I didn't have that confidence. And then just starting a business, you're always, for me, it was always thinking about the worst case scenario. My head would always go there. It's like, what if all these 10 things happened at once and I would basically wouldn't have a house and be on the street, right? And I don't know, you know, looking back at it, it's so silly, but I think a lot of people are like that. And so- I'll validate that (laughs) I, eight years in, I still have those, oh my gosh, worst case scenario, I'm going to lose my house uh, kinds of, you know, sleepless nights. Yeah. Now, I I think I still have some of that too, but not nearly. I mean, my head doesn't go there automatically right away. A lot of that is just experience. You know, you go through seven years of this and you realize that every year your company's growing and you had some challenges, but you overcame them and they were honestly opportunities to grow. And so I'm in a lot better place. And I think that what also that once you get past that, what it helps with is taking, going a little bit riskier on some of these decision-making. I've always made very calculated risks, but sometimes maybe they were too safe. And so this last year, year and a half, as the confidence has grown, my tolerance, risk tolerance has also grown. Have you had any pivots along the way or things pretty square with what you started out? Yeah. I mean, the biggest pivot was really embracing Nearshore. That wasn't really part of my initial vision. Actually, I was a little hesitant to that just because the actual software development, the quality, the customer success was so important to me that I didn't have much experience working in Latin America and I didn't know what that meant. And so when that opportunity came, I was hesitant about it, but um, knowing that I had Eduardo managing and making sure he was aligned with what I wanted out of this it actually worked out really well. So that, that has been the biggest pivot for the company. What has been like the biggest surprise in this journey? Probably the biggest surprise is I didn't realize how much I enjoy the people side of the business, right? So initially our vision was transforming organizations through high quality software, but then probably about three years ago, I, I wanted to add people, transforming people. And as we continue down the journey, what I really became passionate about was transforming our people, creating these opportunities, uh, you know, having these people come into our company a couple of years out of college and, and all of a sudden they're amazing consultants transforming organizations it was, was a very cool thing to be a part of. My favorite story is there was a person that was bagging groceries at HEB, but Eduardo saw something special in him. We supported him on taking some classes while he was bagging and he's running our quality assurance program at the company, right? Like just being able to transform people's lives. And I think that's the part that I'm surprised that I have really embraced and is really what's motivating me now. I, over the last several years, I've had a whole lot of pinch me moments. Like, is this, is this really happening? And it's probably about a year and a half 
two years ago, we had a standing Monday morning meeting with the whole company and we just made a few hires and, and I look around the room and at the time there were, there were 14 people and it struck me, there are 14 families that put food on their table right. that pay their mortgage because of this business. Right. And there's something really rewarding about yeah. that. And we've, we've grown, we're not huge and we're 24 people now, mm-hmm. there's 24 families. Right. And when I think about the, the, you know, the number of people, there's, you know, three kids in this family, five kids in that family, two kids, there's a hundred plus people that are sustained. Yeah. You're by, impacting by right. in a positive way. Exactly. Very cool. Yeah. It's been really rewarding. All right. So what do you enjoy most about the job? You may have already touched on it. But. Yeah. I think that is definitely the transforming people is what I enjoy the most about it. And then uh, being in the driver's seat for that, we, we have biweekly town halls, right? And being able to sit there and, you know, it's crazy. To, when we started the company, it was a Zoom call with three people, right? And now you get on these Zoom calls and it's 50, 60 people on there. Um, and they're all open years and listening to you. And I think giving them a sense of purpose, I didn't realize how far that goes and kind of a one vision, one purpose, bigger than just waking up in the morning and kind of fixing a really annoying bug, right? Like that, that's probably not going to get you excited in the morning, but giving our folks a bigger purpose about transforming organizations, creating an amazing organization ourselves, and just reinforcing it. It was something that I've, I've really enjoyed. Let's maybe flip the question around. What do you enjoy the least? You know, we, again, I don't come from a sales or marketing background. I'm trying to figure out I mean, I'm surprised how we've made it so far. We, you know, we've, we've been growing probably on average 50% and it's all organically. And so it shows that we are really good at what we do, but, and we just started working on sales and marketing probably about a year and a half ago. Uh, and that's been a challenge <laughs> to kind of gain that, le- figure out how to do that, especially in a services industry. It, there's no like one formula that just works. You, you kind of have to have an approach where you try a lot of things. You have to have a lot of experiments going on at the same time. And I'm not a patient person. So I just want to get to like, all right, this is the formula. Let's just execute. And so that's been tough for me to be patient and have these failures and use those failures to learn and to, you know, slowly get to where we need to get to. Well, if you do figure out that formula, <laughs> you know, we won't share it with the world, but yeah. you'll, you'll send it to Well, me. you're in great hands so, <laughs> with Melissa here. That's for sure. You mentioned being impatient. And I think that that is a common thread throughout successful entrepreneurs. Yes. There's this natural impatience. Right. And so I, I'm very much the same. <laughs> All right. Well, is there anything that you look back and go, man, I would have done that differently? There's a couple things. So one, I think I would have gone back and been a lot more risk tolerant, just going back to the fear of failure and not taking calculated risk, but they're probably a little bit too calculated. And then the second is going back to what I just mentioned is really thinking about sales and marketing early, earlier on in the process. What I've realized is it's great to grow organically, but you have no control over your destiny. It's basically you're you have to have a revolving door and whoever shows up, your your strategy is say yes. And that doesn't create an identity for you. To create an identity, you have to set it and test it and then pivot as you figure out what makes, I don't know, what makes you unique in the market. And that just takes time. It's not something that you, like I said, it's not something you just, there's a formula, you know, 
after a couple of days, this is where. And so we're in that process now. I wish we had done that earlier. You know, when you have that success early on, it's just an afterthought. You know, people keep telling you that that's something you need to be doing. And you're like, why? And we're, we're doing so well, we're growing. And then you realize that you're working with people that you don't want to ideally work with, but you, you want to figure out how to work with the ones that you do want to work with. And you don't have a good strategy to get there. It's kind of humbling when people have been telling you for years and years, you need to do this, you need to do this. And you're like, eh, yeah, no, I, I got it. I, I, I <laughs> yeah. know better than you. You think you know everything, right? <laughs> and, then, and then you wake up one day and you go, oh, they were right. There's a gentleman that's kind of in our industry and years and years ago, he gave me some advice. And this past summer, about a week before a conference that I knew I was going to see him at, realized, oh, we've actually started doing the thing that he told me to do five years ago. And it's just, you know, it's, right. it's, it's it made a difference. For us. So right. It's been huge. Yeah. Um, so I, I think he, uh, he, he felt some, um, you know, uh, <laughs> vindication is not the right word, but, but he liked hearing that, uh, right. that he was right. So, and, and, you know, the other thing is being in these organizations for me is I want to hear whatever it is multiple times from different sources before I'll go down that path. But you have to put yourself in places where you can hear those things. And so being around other business leaders, other peers, it doesn't even have to be in the same industry, really forces you to rethink how you're doing things, the challenges that you're facing, the solutions that you're creating. And so, I, again, I, I can't recommend more surrounding yourself around those types of people. Are there any books you've read? Are there any speakers that you've heard? Are there any conferences that you've been to mm. that have been transformative or instrumental? You know, what's interesting is I'm not a book, I haven't been a book person. That's actually something that I just picked up in the last, again, going back to the sales thing. So I realized that we had to have, create a real formal sales organization. And to me, when I'm a type of person that's, if I'm going to go down this path, I'm going to figure out all the tools that I need. And I started reading for the first time in, you know, since basically college. So I've been reading for the last, uh, let's say four months and I'm really frustrated with myself that I hadn't been doing it earlier. So, you know, I couldn't, I don't have a wealth of knowledge around books that have been transformational in terms of speakers. Yeah. You know, I, not really, I don't know if you're familiar with Sam Harris, mm -mm. it's more of a podcast, something that has really a thing that's been transformation, not a person is, is mindfulness for me. And so, you know, I got into, I started just by meditating because of my my running coach. So I'm, I'm an avid runner and I said, you know, use this as a tool to prepare yourself for workouts and, and races. And I realized that it had a, just as bit of an impact in my business. You know, I was carrying all these stresses and challenges to me at, at home and in bed and, you know, waking up with them and uh, it wasn't healthy. And it also was a block to be able to focus and grow the company. And I realized that it was a amazing tool for that. And so I kind of went down that path further and in, in uh, utilizing other tools around mindfulness. And, and Sam Harris is a big mindfulness person and been listening to his podcast to help promote that. Okay. Outside of work, in fact, I had your, your LinkedIn profile pulled up and I love your banner picture. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So you're, you're an avid runner. Yeah. What, what's going on in that picture? Yeah. So that's from last year. I ran a marathon in Sacramento and it was my best time. It was a 229, which is about a 540 uh, average, 540 per mile average pace. Good for you. That's unbelievable. If you ever see me running, <laughs> run faster because there's something fierce coming. That's awesome. How'd you get into running? 
So uh, again, going back to, it's really going back to my childhood. So my dad actually started running just in random races and I would throw myself in the 1K, the kids K and, and started winning those. So I was like, oh, I'm not, not too bad at this. Started running in, in, in uh, high school and cross country and track, really enjoyed it. In college, I actually switched to triathlons. No big deal. Just switch to <laughs> triathlons. Well, because I swam and, you know, and then I just picked up biking and I actually liked biking too. But what I realized is when you want to start a family that, that triathlons is a little bit too much time commitment, especially at the level I wanted to keep compete at. So I picked the one I was best at and stayed with it, which was running and got a great coach and um, wanted to focus on the marathon. It was actually my best event and yeah, just stay dedicated and, and create, it goes again around creating a group around you that pushes you. So I have an amazing training group in town. You know, some of these guys are actually one just qualified for the Olympic trials in the marathon, right? Just having that level, right? I'm, you think that I'm fast, but these guys are like next level. So surrounding yourself with people that are going to motivate you and push you is key. Are there any lessons you have learned from running that you've applied to business or yeah, vice versa? Sure. You know, I think that there's a huge crossover between being an athlete and sports and being an entrepreneur and running a business. And, and I think that's a key part of my success, being competitive early on, understanding kind of that correlation between hard work, dedication, and success. And it, it just is a complete crossover to what it takes to to create a business and be successful, right? So learning that early and then and having that experience was very important. So I know there's a great a lot of great entrepreneurs that are athletes. You know, I think that's probably the biggest takeaway that crossover is between the dedication, hard work, and knowing that's required to be successful. I wholeheartedly agree with all of that. Two of our top performers in our organization are former college athletes. And yeah. there's there's something about the discipline, there's something about the team mindset that just makes you a an excellent member of a team and right. in, in, in in a work uh, Yeah. And I think beyond that, the other part of it too is especially in endurance athletes, is being able to suffer, right? So being able to put your mind in a place where you can suffer a little bit, knowing that it's gonna pay off at the end. Yeah. You definitely have to have a, a long-term mindset, not definitely. a, you know, instant. Right. All right. Well, kind of winding things down, what piece of advice would you give to somebody who is thinking about starting a business? Yeah, I think I thought about that a little bit earlier today. And, and I think actually I know what that advice would be is find the shortcuts, right? Create, find the people that will give you those shortcuts that will tell you their failures so that you don't make those same failures surround yourself with people that have been successful as well as people that may have not been successful and ask a lot of questions. Um, and ultimately is, I think the more you can get your ego out of the way, the more you can take those learnings and apply them to your business. And I'm fortunate in that my ego is pretty low. So I've, I've been able to do that pretty early on and continue to do that. Um, you know, my goal for this year was to have at least one lunch a week with someone that I can learn and just ask questions. And then, you know, I write those down and I review them at the end of the week and uh, figure out what are those things that I can apply to my business. And so, uh, you know, just having that, being able to apply that to the business without having the ego saying that maybe they're wrong or I have the better way of doing it has been, is my advice is find those people and use them. I love it. What's next for the organization? 
Yeah. So, it, you know, it's interesting. We've grown to a point where we can't scale with what got us to where we're at now. And, in, you know, you hear a lot about these different points in a business where you really have to pivot the way that you're running the organization, thinking about the organization to take it to that next level. And if you're not able to do that, you're going to basically be stagnant. And and if you're okay with that, that's fine. Um, for us, we're not okay with that. We feel like we've great built this great foundation of amazing people. Really, that that's our, been our success, right? It's, it's our people. So how can we use that? And we owe it to our people to create a better organization with better clients that truly appreciate the value we're bringing. And so that that's really the next challenge is, is how do we rebuild our company to take us to that next level? That was Ashish Patel, CEO and founder of Simpat Tech. To learn more, visit simpattech.com. Also, be sure to follow Ashish on LinkedIn, where he posts frequently about topics ranging from what it's like to be a family man and a CEO, to his insights on the tech industry, and what it's like running a high-performing organization. If you or a founder you know would like to be a guest on In the Thick of It, email us at intro at founderstory.us. 